unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Over the weekend, the Congress party notched a major election win, clinching a decisive single-party majority in the state of Karnataka, earning the highest vote share of any political party in the state since 1989. For the Congress, which is starved of election wins, this result could not have come at a better time, as the country gears up for national elections early next year. The incumbent BJP put in a disappointing performance, one that's likely to prompt some soul-searching as the party regroups for key state elections later this fall. To unpack what happened in Karnataka and what it means for the state and for India, I am pleased to welcome Shoghatha Srinivasaraju back to the podcast. Shoghatha is one of the most respected journalists and political observers in Karnataka. If you spend any time this campaign season reading the newspapers or watching Indian television, there's a better than even chance you saw him in action. He's the author of several books, including Furrows in a Field, The Unexplored Life of H.T. Devagoda. Shogatha, I know you're in great demand right now. Thank you so much for taking the time for our show. Thank you. Thank you, Milan, for inviting me. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of this particular election, I'd like you to place Karnataka in a broader context. What in your mind is the broader significance of this election? Uh, and in other words, you know, why should people overseas, or for that matter, Indians themselves, be paying close attention to what happened this week in Karnataka? The single most reason, Milan, that people should be paying a lot of attention to this election is because it's very, very close to the general elections in 2024. So the question that I often get asked is uh, how much of this is going to sort of affect or uh, you know influence the 2024 results? So I have uh, been consistent in my response to that question, which is that it has very little to do with what may happen in 2024. Because this election, the Karnataka election, the results of which were announced on the 13th of May, uh, you know, was a very locally fought election. In fact, it was so very local that uh, none of the big issues that we generally read in Indian newspapers, uh, the, the, related to, say, crony capitalism, when it comes to the Congress, you know, Congress has been raising that issue quite often, or the victimhood of Rahul Gandhi, or the Bharat Jodo Yatra, or Hindutva for that matter, did not figure majorly in the Karnataka elections. So, you know, all the big ticket items that often get discussed in the Indian context did not get raised in the local elections here, except the Hindutva issue did come up, but it came up uh, very, very, uh, at the very fag end, only after Congress said that it will be banning Bajrang Dal, uh, a, a communal, uh, quote-unquote, a communal organization, uh, only then did, uh, uh, you know I mean, the BJP tried to respond to it. For the first time, you know I mean, the Congress was setting the agenda and the BJP was responding. And, uh, I mean, that does not seem to have had major effect because the local leaders, again, this, this diktat to ban the Bajrang Dal seems to have come from Delhi. So the local leaders in Karnataka were completely surprised, taken by surprise. And when they were asked for responses, you will find it very interesting. They said that we don't know anything about banning this anyway. We can't do it as a state government. But we promise to build many more Hanuman temples at, at, at the Taluk level 
after we come to power and we are going to start schemes in the name of Hanuman for the youth of Karnataka. So they were actually, you know, completely flabbergasted that this thing had, I mean, this, this was some kind of a kind of, uh, you know, I mean, unexpected thing that had been uh, thrown into the whole election process and they did not know how to respond and they started, you know, responding typically like a BJP person would respond and uh, saying that this this is an issue which uh, uh, we will not sort of take very seriously because it's it's a central Congress kind of maneuver. So there's a lot there to, to unpack. Let, let, let me back up a second and start first with the incumbent, right? The BJP government was helmed by Basavaraj Bomai. He took over from B.S. Yadirappa, who was, you know, the longtime BJP stalwart, several time chief minister who resigned uh, in July of 2021. Now, Bomai has been described as overseeing a somewhat meandering government, it developed an unwelcome reputation for corruption. In fact, the Congress campaign referred to his government as the 40% Sarkara, right? Implying that it takes a 40% cut on all government contracts. Was this lackluster reputation, I guess you could call it, of the outgoing Bomai government, was it well-deserved? Yes, completely well-deserved. You know, I mean, uh, because when Bomai was brought in in uh, July of 2021 to replace Yajurapa, the BJP took care to replace another Lingayat, another dominant community uh, in Karnataka. You know, Bomai belongs to that community and Yajurapa also belongs to that community. So they took care to replace one Lingayat with another Lingayat, although their subcasts were different. I'm, I'm emphasizing the subcast thing because that becomes a big issue uh, in the following months. And uh, it, it became a very crucial issue in the elections and the final outcome of the elections. So uh, so there were different subcasts, but they belonged to the Lingayat community. And Bombay, I think, was brought in essentially to play the Hindutva game. So if you look at his performance in the first, uh, uh, say, uh, six or eight or nine months, the issues that he started raising were all issues that were, uh, you know, I mean, ultra-right issues that the BJP had been raising. You know, communally, very, very strident kind of agenda he was trying to pick and peddle. Uh, one is, of course, the hijab thing became an international issue. The azan thing, you know, I mean, the, the, the prayer call that is given in the morning, trying to ban that. Or, uh, you know, I mean, the, the halal meat issue that became, again, you know, I mean, very controversial. All of these issues uh, were given patronage by the Bombay government. But what happened was uh, over, I mean, after 10 months when the BJP tried to make an assessment of what kind of impact this was having on the population in Karnataka, you know, they were also trying to meddle with textbooks, which is their favorite hobby, by the way. Uh, so, I mean, and also, you know, I mean, uh, pick up historical characters like Tipu Sultan and try to sort of, you know, create controversy around it. So they were trying to do a lot of things. But then after 10 or 11 months uh, of Bomai's regime, they suddenly realized that, that these communal issues were getting no traction across Karnataka, except in the coastal parts of Karnataka. So they tried to mainstream the agenda of coastal Karnataka, but that had been rejected. And BJP, I'm sure, had been conducting a lot of surveys. They're very good with, good with that. The Congress is generally very sleepy. You know, they don't uh, usually, uh, you know, I mean, uh, check the pulse of the people routinely. 
and try to adjust their programs or whatever. But BJP does it quite diligently. And I'm sure they must have got feedback that it is not working. So suddenly, this whole issue was dropped like a hot potato. That is the Hindutva issue. Uh, and they suddenly moved towards the older uh, kind of issues like caste identity politics. And Bombay, I mean, overnight shifted from, you know, I mean, uh, speaking about communal issues to speaking about caste. So when it came to caste, again, they thought that uh, there was, you know, I mean, the Dalits had been, uh, uh, had, making, had been making a demand for the last 30 years that there are, there are Dalits, there are oppressed Dalits within the Dalit, there is a hierarchy within the Dalits in Karnataka, and the most oppressed Dalits, who are also the most populous people, were asking for a separate quota uh, of reservation for the last 30 years. And there had also been a commission which had been set up, say, 15 years ago, and that report had just been lying there. So Bomai picked up the report, and he's, he decided to give internal reservation to the left Dalit, that is the most oppressed Dalit. And uh, he also sort of uh, uh, started listening to the demands of the largest subcaste within the Lingayats, that is the Pancham Salis. They were demand, demanding for a separate reservation in the OBC uh, caste reservations. And uh, he said, okay, I will sort of uh, look into this. And he promised them that he'll give a reservation. And then, of course, it was passed uh, by the state assembly. But of course, it has to be ratified by the parliament and all that. So it may now not happen, or it may happen, we don't know. But he did promise them. But that was quite dramatic because, you know, initially the courts came in, they stopped him from doing it, and then it was overcome. And then finally, he did manage something. Then the third thing he tried to do was he knocked off the 4% backward class reservation that was given to Muslims by Deve Gavda in 1995. So that, you know, even within the caste identity politics that the BJP was trying to do, they inserted a communal element. They just knocked these people off and put them under the newly introduced EWS category. So that is the economically weaker section category. So this was something that he was juggling with. He was trying to do too many things. And then he increased the entire quota thing from 50% to 56%. And of what was knocked off, what was taken away from the Muslims, he gave, he divided that between two dominant communities. So this is a lot of math for a lot of people, you know, 2%, two, 2%. Two it's a very complicated kind of a maneuvering that happened. Even at that point, Milan, I said, either Bomai will get 150 seats for all this that he's doing, or he will go down like another chief minister in Karnataka's history, that is Veerappamoyli, who had done exactly the same thing in 1994, trying to give everything a small piece of whatever, of the quota pie, and everybody disbelieved him, nobody trusted him, and the whole issue just, and he did it just before the elections, like Bomai was doing, and nobody trusted him, and he gave the Congress the lowest number ever in, in post-independent history. So that's exactly what Bomai has achieved now. You know, I mean, although it is not the lowest, because to, uh, 2013, the BJP went down far sharper, and they have still retained their vote share this time. But, I mean, it, it is comparable. 
fascinating window into caste politics, reservation politics, and how it plays out. And the effort really essentially to be, uh, you know, uh, everything, everything to everyone, right? Um, now, if you just turn to the opposition side for a second, you know, we have the Indian National Congress. It had formed the government in the state after the 2018 elections in alliance with a key regional partner, the Janta Dal Secular, the JDS you referenced earlier, only to see that government crumble. It gave way eventually to the BJP. Now, the Congress has developed a reputation, as it has in so many states, of being highly factionalized. In Karnataka, you had power resting with two key figures, D.K. Shivkumar and the former chief minister, Sidramaya. I mentioned corruption already as a motif of the campaign, but but what were the other markers of how the Congress sought to dethrone the BJP in this particular state assembly election? Milan, you know, I mean, looking at the numbers that the Congress has got, people will tend people tend to believe that they must have worked really hard. But I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I would like to tell you that this corruption narrative that the Congress picked up was a very lazy narrative. Because it was some digital players who were actually working hard and breaking scams after scams. And Congress picked up the narrative initially uh, by sort of, you know, I mean, appropriating the statement of the State Contractors Association. And the first charge that they lobbed at the Bombay government of 40% reserve, 40% cut, uh, you know, or commission was completely unsubstantiated. I don't think even to this day it has been substantiated. But that somehow stuck to the Bomai government because unusually, unusually again for the BJP, the BJP did not try to counter the narrative as effectively as, as effectively as it does in other cases. The BJP, I don't really know, probably Modi and Shah was so fed up with uh, Bomai and Yadurapa and Karnataka's politics, or probably they were busy with something else. And the state unit, the BJP state unit itself, is a faction of three or four, you know, I mean, led by, it's, it's, it's a four-way kind of a thing, or a three-way thing. So, so probably they did not put their heads together to counter this corruption narrative. Probably they thought that corruption narratives have never worked even in Karnataka. You know, I mean, corrupt. It, it, it mean, I have the great example of the 1978 election when Devagowda just again missed the bus. You know, I mean, m did not become chief minister, but had been releasing papers against the Devrajara's government practically every single day for eight years. And in 78, the highest vote share ever was given to. I mean, people elected back Aras after the emergency. I think with. 44% uh, or 45% vote share, which is the highest. And that was surprising. And that day, if, you know, when the assembly session began, Devagoda made this statement saying that I am never going to make corruption ever an issue in Karnataka again because I am so disappointed with what has happened because a corrupt government has been elected back. Of course, there were other things why uh, RS had been elected. That's a separate thing. But corruption had never worked. Even in 2013, the last time that the Congress had come to power, Milan, you know, they had fought the Balari miners, the corrupt Balari miners. But even then, their vote share was just about 33-34%. And with that 33%, their strike rate was higher. They got 122 seats only because the BJP had splintered 
three ways. Yadurapa had gone out of the party. Sri Ramulu, a tall uh, tribal leader, had gone out of the party. So Yadurapa and Sri Ramulu combined had taken away 12% of the BJP's vote share. And that is why the Congress had come to power in 2013. And there was no way it would have come to power in 2013 had Yadurapa still been part of the uh, uh, of the BJP. So this, and see, that is proved because in 2018, the Congress vote share was 38%, but its strike rate was so bad that they just got around 78 seats. So it was pathetic. So so the strike rate and the strike rate varied, although the vote shares, you know, I mean, uh, uh, were, were higher, the strike rate was smaller. And this time, it has crossed, it has touched 43% and they have a very good strike rate. And that is because they have performed uniformly well across all regions in Karnataka. In fact, in every single region, if there are six political regions in Karnataka, there are actually five. But if you try to look at the cluster of Bangalore as independent with 28 seats, then it is six. So uh, in all the regions, their vote share is above 40% which is very, very good. And this is something like uh, the 78 situation or the 89 situation, that is the Virendra Patil election, when their strike rate was far better. They touched 170 seats with the same uh, vote share or slightly higher vote share. But, uh, but, but, but that's, their performance has been very good. In fact, I have maintained, uh, Milan, that uh, this election is the most inclusive and representational vote share that the Congress has got. And I make this statement because, see, to bring in caste to pick a chief minister or to say that it was the uh, work, handiwork of just one person, that is Siddharamaya or D.K. Shukumar, is, is, would be completely wrong. Because this election, I think, was not an ideological election where people were reacting to ideological issues it was an anger election. People were fed up with the BJP government. They wanted to get rid of them, and they gave their oath to a party that was most likely to form a government. So that, and in the process, the JDS got wiped out. That is that is the largest scenario. Let me ask you about you know one factor of the BJP campaign that is always a story, right? Uh, it, which is the Modi factor, right? I, I think he addressed something like eighteen rallies across the state. He took out as many as three roadshows. Now, given that the BJP was saddled with a rather unpopular uh, incumbent chief minister, the party really put Modi front and center. And we've seen, look, there are many examples of states in which the quote unquote Modi magic did carry the party, right? Even in state elections. That didn't happen here. What's your best guess for why that Modi factor perhaps was somewhat uh, not enough to put them over the finish line? No, I mean, uh, I would like to uh, put it this way. See, the Modi factor was very important even in Karnataka elections. That is very clear if you look at the cluster of 28 seats in Bangalore. That's the only region where the BJP has done well. And Modi did back-to-back road shows for an entire day, doing 17 kilometers on the road, blocking, I mean, the entire, I mean, creating a traffic jam in the entire Karnataka. Right. Even, even a a, a city which is notorious, notorious for horrible for traffic. Yeah, so he, he did that, and that has sort of delivered results to them. You know, in fact, my own survey uh, in, uh, say, around uh, 
you know, we were making a small assessment uh, in sometime in April, early April. And, uh, you know, I thought the BJP will get 44, 45 seats. It, they're, 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 there was such bad response on the ground. People were completely fed up. They just wanted them gone. So if Modi, if Modi had not intervened the way he did, he came, he spoke, he did his duty, and le just left the rest to the people. So I think without him, they would have performed even poorly. And if you look at the margin of victories, at least 60, 70 seats, you know, it's less than 5% margin with which the Congress has won. So it was a touch and go in many seats across regions. So Modi, I, I think uh, it would be uh, wrong to say that Modi did not contribute. Modi contributed, but Modi contributed here to save the party from absolute annihilation or humiliation. I think it, it's best to put it that way. And, and I think there is a default advantage to Modi by doing this because, see, if you look at their scheme of things in 21 July when they brought in Bomai, they had to do that because Yadiropa had touched 80 and they had to look at leadership uh, for the future of the party. And I've maintained that this is a transitional election. They wanted Yadiropa out. They wanted the caste game, which, you know, I mean, is, is a very, very difficult game to play. They wanted to create a more universal electorate in Karnataka, a more bipolar kind of audience. And I think they played it well. You know, I mean, I, now if I start looking at, the, looking at the results and across the region, vote shares and seat shares and the margins of victory, I have a feeling that I think it was the decision of the BJP high command to let go of the victory, maintain the vote share and move into new areas in Karnataka where they will go back and probably build, and they become a pan-Karnataka party. See, until now, they were, a, they were mostly a North Karnataka, Central Karnataka, and Coastal Karnataka party. Now, for the first time, of course, they've, they've snatched away around 4% from the JDS in the South Karnataka region, uh, and, uh, and the Congress has taken the bigger share, but they have made a huge dent in South Karnataka. And I'm sure they're going to build on that. And if you look at the and, and the, the first target of Amit Shah and Modi right from the beginning you know, of the campaign in November of 2022 was the old Mysore region. That is the erstwhile princely Mysore region where they first went and attacked Devagoda and family. They went and created a lot of disturbance there by raising issues related to Tipu Sultan and his communal nature. And they tried to polarize. But... When they realized that it was not working, they, take, they took a step back. But the whole thing is that the BJP strategy, this particular election, when they knew that they are not going to win, was to expand their footprint. And I think they have done that reasonably well, retaining the entire vote share of 36%. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out.
Just a very interesting analysis of Modi. Just to kind of flip the script a bit, let me ask you about Rahul Gandhi, because um, when it comes to rallies and roadshows, of course, we had uh, last year the, the Bharat Jodo Yatra, uh, and a lot of people have been speculating about the impact it may have had on these elections. Um, some of our listeners might have recalled that the author spent about 21 days, about three weeks last fall, uh, going uh, through the state of Karnataka. Uh, the best analysis I've seen on this is by two young scholars, uh, Fayyad Ali and Resif Ahmed. They published a piece in the Hindustan Times. We'll link to this which uh, by their best estimate, the Yathra may have boosted the Congress's vote share by between two and three percentage points. But I guess I want to ask you from the ground up, what impact do you think this had? I mean, is it tangible? You know, if you go back to September and to now, was that momentum uh, really uh, caused by by, by this rally through the state? I mean, uh, if you ask me, my personal opinion is this is a retrospective spin that is being given to credit Rahul Gandhi with some kind of success. See, if it's, it's a very inconsistent argument because they've walked around 511 kilometers. And I think you're right, they spent about two, 21 days in the state. And roughly, roughly speaking, around 20 assembly constituencies were touched. But when the rally was happening, two things happened. One, the Congress itself was trying to say that this was more a harmony uh, related yatra, and it was not an electoral thing. Correct. Two, explicitly saying explicitly that. Explicitly saying that, number one. And number two, I was in touch with Congress leaders, the top leaders of the Congress in the state at that time, and all the time, all the 21 days, they were grumbling that Rahul Gandhi is not doing anything to sort of boost the electoral prospects of the party, which will be facing elections a few months down the line. So this was an, a complaint, and I did write about it in my columns as well. It's not that I am trying to sort of recall their comments now. I did write about it in September, October of 2022. So this is a retrospective spin, I think. And even if you look at seats, say, for example, he spent a lot of time in the Mysore region. But Chamundeshwari, a seat which is right in the middle of, uh, of Mysore, was lost. There are similarly a lot of seats which they have lost as well and where they have just been status quo. So I think those, it's, it's quite, uh, uh, I mean, it's a retrospective spin to accommodate Rahul Gandhi, give him a bit of credit. And to be fair uh, to the, the local leadership, they, they took charge of the campaign. And Rahul Gandhi did not make mistakes that he usually makes or has made in, in other campaigns. He did not speak he did not even utter Adani even once. He did not speak crony capitalism. He did not speak about his own victimhood or defamation cases or disqualification. He just went along the flow. He spoke local issues. He spoke about corruption. And that was it. In fact, it was Priyanka Gandhi who was the lead campaigner. She did more rallies than Rahul Gandhi. She did. I think she, she matched Modi and Shah. Uh, in terms of the number of rallies that she addressed or the local connect that she built. So I think this is a bit of a retrospective thing, although I'm willing to concede the point if, you know, I mean, uh, if it's otherwise, and when I start examining that a little more closely. But as of today, I feel it has had very little impact. Now, fair enough. I mean, you know, in some sense, you could say, look, the the, the hard part of campaigning, electioneering is over. 
But uh, but for the Congress, you know, the act two of forming a government is, is, is in some respects even trickier, deciding uh, first and foremost, who is it going to name as chief minister? As we discussed earlier, the camp is divided in at least two, if not more, main factions. Uh, you know, this is real-time analysis. This is on Tuesday, May 16th. The episode will come out later today. Uh, as of right now, what do we know about how the Congress is likely to resolve the chief ministerial question? Yeah, just before your show, Milan, I was working the phones to Delhi. And the sense that I get is that it is a kind, it's unresolved as yet. There are three major factions. I wouldn't call uh, the Karge thing a faction, but Karge being the national president, from Karnataka will have a major role to play. And I learned that Rahul Gandhi has said, it is your state, you take a call. And there are two big players. One is Siddharamaya, who has already been chief minister. And there is DK Shivkumar, who actually built the organization, created the degree of confidence that the party needed to go all out, invested a lot of money, brought in experts. He is the real organizational man. And if he's staking claim to the chair, then, you know, he has every right to do that. Sidramaya is more a, a kind of man who worked the crowds with his rhetoric. He's been a former chief minister, a very popular one at that. And he's also supported by, you know, a, a, a large group of opinion makers in Karnataka. See, you should know the Kannada intellectual is a very partisan, the, the intellectuals in Karnataka are very partisan because they have always, you know, this is, this is a grouse that I've had, that they have always been co-opted by governments to run cultural institutions and universities. You know, the, the whole alignment, it's, it's cultural politics of a different kind. So these people have been putting out opinion and creating opinion that Sidramaya is the finest. But the problem is Sidramaya is not an organizational man. He has not held, uh, you know, I mean, he has not, he has done very little for the party except for enjoying power ever since he came into the Congress party. And people have not forgotten that in 2008, he rebelled against Malikarjun Karge. And in 2013, again, Karge lost out because he asserted himself. And again, in 2019, uh, the, 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 I have every reason to believe that if the coalition government, the secular coalition formation that was running in Karnataka came down, it was because that Sidramaya uh, you know, moved some of his very close followers into the BJP. So Sidramaya, although has this very big halo of being a very secular, progressive, committed leader, there is there are also these rumors and these, you know, I mean, very well-placed kind of, you know, well, well-formed opinion about him that he uh, has managed opinion about himself and has also sort of not done enough for the parties. Look at someone like Karge. He has worked for the party uh, from 1972 onwards uh, and has missed the bus many times. You know, has never been chief minister, although he has uh, been a solid leader, you know, working the, the, the grassroots and working at the grassroots. And he is now the national president. And he is also eminently qualified to be the chief minister of the state. And, you know, I mentioned the other day on national television that uh, Karge, if he wants to be chief minister, then there is a precedence inside the Congress, in the Congress history, where Neelam Sanjeev Reddy was the chief minister of Andhra Pradesh and, as, and was simultaneously the national president of the Congress. So if he 
if he can, if there is a precedence, if Karge wants to invoke that, and if he has a free hand, and if he does not want the Congress to splinter, which is most likely to happen, and the and the BJP will take absolute benefit of that, then I think they have to have more options than two to consider for the chief minister's chair. Wow, uh, very fascinating. I, I just want to kind of ask you a little bit about what to expect, assuming they resolve this question in their favor one way or another with one of these three options, you know, uh, how they're going to govern. The Congress is getting a lot of credit for its pro-poor promises it made on the campaign trail. I mean, they had these five guarantees, cash transfers for women and unemployed youth, free rations, free bus travel for women, so on and so forth. Many people believe this may have helped the party consolidate poor voters. So again, irrespective of how it irons out the leadership issue, I think a big question that a lot of people are now asking the day after is, are these promises even fiscally possible without breaking the, the bank, as it were? Oh, see, there are two views. Uh, I am not an economist, so I will be very cautious when I respond to this question. See, there are two views. One is the Amit Shah view, which is, he said, if the Congress, uh, pro, I mean, uh, I mean uh, satisfies, you know, I mean, goes ahead and implements all the guarantees that it has promised, then it will be double the size of the Karnataka budget. The size of the Karnataka budget for your view, I mean, audience, just to give a ball, I mean, uh, give them the figure, it's around three lakh crores. You know, I mean, uh, that's that's the size of three lakh crore rupees. You know, I mean, that's the size of the Karnataka budget. And you know, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, there is a lot of deficit, and. Uh, uh, the other view is that the Congress view is it will they will just need around 15% of the state's budget to sort of implement all the guarantees that they have made. So these are two views of two political parties, one opposing and one promising the thing. But uh, there is something else that is happening, which some of some reporters who were speaking to me this morning from remote corners of Karnataka told me, and it's absolutely fascinating. It's it's absolutely fresh information coming in, which is they were saying in some villages of North Karnataka and Old Mysore region, people have been have already told the electricity board that we will not pay the electricity bills because Congress has won the elections and they have promised us 200 units free, all households. And so wait until the government is formed. We are not going to fill our bills and to pay the bills until then. So there is already chaos, which is kind of worrying. And when it came, when it came to these uh, unemployment uh, doles that the Congress was promising, see, it, it personally looked to me a little regressive because, you know, for a graduate, they were promising 3,000 rupees a month. And for a diploma holder, they were promising 1,500 rupees. But they did not, you know, one is to stratify that is itself a little funny. And the second thing is they did not say how they will generate employment, but they said, if you're unemployed, we will give you this dole until you get employment. And this is, a, I mean, how will you implement something like this is the question. Because some people will be doing casual, uh, you know, they'll be casual laborers. They will be on ad hoc duty in universities or, uh, I mean, I mean taking, taking up different kind of private assignments. So how do you determine somebody's unemployment is a very big question. And not to address the question of generating employment itself is a little bit worrying, I thought. And I think, see, Milan, my theory is 
the congress when they made these guarantees they were in the range of 95 to 100 seats or in the, in the range of 90 to 100 seats and they thought they will not get this massive mandate and they could use one excuse or the other to say that you know mean we, we we don't have the full mandate so it was at that point these schemes were announced and they themselves i have a feeling that themselves never uh, you know mean expected this kind of a massive uh, mandate i mean they thought at best they will stop at around 115 seats which would still make it a very volatile situation but they have been blessed with you know what i mean the seats that they have got 135 and 43% vote share shogata let me just zoom out for a second and ask you a little bit about the the broader import of these elections and maybe some of the lessons learned you know we're going to turn our attention pretty quickly to another set of regional polls scheduled for the end of this year those will be seen as the kind of semifinals i guess for the 2024 general elections uh, you know if you're the congress for instance which doesn't have too many states in its kitty Are there a set of lessons or common ingredients to success you think that they can divine from this Karnataka race that they can apply in states coming up for election like Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Chhattisgarh and others? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, Bilal. See, I I don't because this was a very locally fought election a lot of things cannot be replicated. But probably what they will try to take or what they've already borrowed is the welfare schemes. You know, they borrowed it from Rajasthan and Chhattisgarh and Modi has been complaining that they have not implemented it there. But when it see Telangana, very interestingly in the south, the neighboring state will also go to polls before the general elections. That's in November, December, which is Telangana, and where the Congress is the principal opposition party. However battered they are, they're still the uh, so one is the welfare schemes may go there, but welfare schemes may not work in Telangana because. K Chandrasekhar Rao the chief minister there has been very high on welfare and development schemes but congress coming to power in karnataka is very very crucial because uh, uh it's possible possible that you know their resources will expand and they can help the telangana unit of the congress to get additional resources to fight the elections which is extremely crucial and and you know that karnataka uh karnataka the elections were a very expensive affair and i think it's the costliest election in uh, in in in, the, in in entire india i think we can say that with some certainty that it's the most expensive election conducted in karnataka in in, in india and uh, uh it beats all records uh, because you know i mean i can just give you a sample thing my own uh, maid who looks after you know i mean who does chores at our place she was given uh, you know one of them was given 5000 another one was given 7000 by uh, party so you know that is uh, the the amount of vote the amount of money that you spend to get a vote you know i mean uh, in it's 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 a it's a pretty pathetic state so congress will need funds and the bjp has a lot of funds so coming to power in karnataka may help the other state in the south immediately uh in in kind of replenishing their coffers but rajasthan uh chatisgarh madhya pradesh is a completely different game because it's as you know it's upwards of vindhyas and uh, the issues and the agenda will be very different and you know what's happening in rajasthan already the factional fight that may begin in karnataka has already played out in a in a fascinating way in rajasthan 
so where the where the two big players are at loggerheads and are fighting each other chatisgarh there is a bit of unhappiness because bupesh baghel did not hand over the chief ministership to ts singh dio who was the president uh, of the party when the party came to power after two of the, the two and a half year line so you know i mean things may work very differently but you see a bit of that reflection in karnataka now and 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 a bit of extrapolation may be there a little later so so uh, shogad let me just ask you one final question you know, i found your discussion of this transitional bjp to be quite interesting right and i'm wondering if if we could just kind of elaborate on that and then and then we close with that which is you know one could make an argument that this was actually pretty machiavellian in a sense of amit shah and narendra modi because they had an old guard leadership that they had to ease out they have a new guard leadership they need to build up but they also need to expand their vote share break into new geographic areas re uh, uh fashion old kind of settled caste uh calculations as it were and so as we're thinking about 2024 um without a- asking you to extrapolate too much i mean one could create a plausible narrative that actually this set of events sets up the bjp pretty nicely a year from now absolutely absolutely that's been my belief that 2024 you know they would have dumped their anti incumbency and they would have a new team that would be running the state organization because the senior leaders have all lost the elections yadurappa is out of the frame you know almost out of the frame and modi and shah have the free hand to completely rejig the local organization and you know mean it would be a modi shah team that will be working in karnataka from now on until now it was a yadurappa team and i've always discussed a dis- described edurappa as a mandal politician someone who worked with caste very closely rather than a hindutva politician he only used hindutva as an air cover but he was so so very good with caste that he finally you know after 2008 he became the leader of the most backward communities in karnataka he became uh, i mean he brought the st communities into the bjp he brought of course the lingayats came with him uh, but he also brought the most oppressed dalits into the bjp so he had actually we thought we all thought it was be sidramaya who would be that kind of a leader with a broad coalition of castes but it turned out to be edurappa with lingayats at the top of the table for him and the rest of them aligning to be the supporting caste to prop up the bjp with 36% vote share and now if you see what has happened they have retained that 36% they have lost a little bit here and there in the two regions where they were very good that is bombay karnataka that's mumbai karnataka and hyderabad karnataka regions and their uh, their uh, vote share is pretty much high in coastal karnataka uh, it's i mean the congress that's that's the only, that's a, that's one other place where they have done better than the congress uh but you know i mean they have made inroads into southern karnataka which is very significant and that's that's exactly what i told you they're trying to become a pan karnataka party now that becoming a pan karnataka party will change the narrative probably hindutva will come in a different guise in will come in a different form now tipu sultan has not worked because tipu sultan is not a mogul king he is he was a son of the soil born in 
Devnahalli, which is just about 30 kilometers from Bangalore, and died here. So he was a local man. His father was a local man. So the Okaligas or the people of this region have always attributed their uh, their their social capital and economic well-being to the initiators that Hyderali and Tipu Sultan did in the 18th century. So there is a lot of good memory about him, although pockets of southern Karnataka like Kurg and other places have a lot of complaints against him. Uh, don't don't sort of look at him the same way that other regions look at him in southern Karnataka. But the BJP is bound to come back into Karnataka in the next elections or in 2024 with a far more sophisticated palette of, you know, I mean, colors. So I think that's 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 what's going to happen. My guest on the show this week is the respected political analyst Shogata Srinivasaraju. He is one of the uh, the most eminent uh, political observers in the state of Karnataka. I think you've just spent the last 45 minutes understanding why. Shogata, you are a man deserving of a vacation. You have about seven months uh, before you have to start thinking about the, 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 the Karnataka elections at the national level. Thank you so much for uh, what must have been a, an incredibly exhausting, but, but perhaps also maybe exhilarating time for you as well. Uh, thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you, Mullen. I greatly enjoyed talking to you and always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Grant Tabasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.